0: All right, everyone, welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a uh, podcaster and writer, and I do other stuff. I have a book called The Quick Fix about shoddy social science, which is something I've written a lot about. Hopefully you can't hear me very unprofessionally filling my water glass as I do this show. Um, so yeah, check out my stuff at jessiesingle.substack.com. I also have a podcast with Katie Herzog, blocked and reported, Reported.org. We just did a premium episode about a crazy internet controversy uh, involving online grifters and arms manufacturers, just all the good things in life. So today, I'm mostly going to take your questions on whatever. I want to talk a little bit about a new study in pediatrics. If you go to my website, jessiesingle.subsec.com, you'll see I published an article called The New Study on Rapid-Onset Gender Dysphoria Published in Pediatrics is Genuinely Worthless. Pediatrics is a top medical journal. Excuse me. And they published a study by a team that included Jack Turbin um, that purported to offer strong evidence against the hypothesis of rapid onset gender dysphoria or the idea of kids, in a sense, either catching gender dysphoria or catching the idea that they have gender dysphoria. From their peers or from the culture. Uh, this is an incredibly controversial idea. Uh, a lot of people find it hateful because they think it invalidates the experiences of trans people, which they view as stemming from something much more innate than um, peers. Uh, I've I've talked to kids who think that they decided they were trans because of peer influence, and there's a lot of stories. I. I I've never heard a convincing account for why it wouldn't happen sometimes. The question of how often it happens, I think, is probably more complicated and basically impossible to answer conclusively. Um, but again, it's just like, what what other area of teenage life is immune from social influence? I find that to be such a ridiculous claim. Um, I could be misinterpreting the claim, but if you look at the way people talk about ROGD, they do seem to be denying the possibility that this is a relatively common occurrence, which I, I find completely baffling. But what's noteworthy about the study is it's just unbelievably bad. Uh, you can look to my article for the details. Some other researchers who are very much on the same page as Jack Turbin, meaning they're very much in favor of youth medical transition, very opposed to the idea of our ROGD, they immediately posted a response that just tore this paper apart. Uh, one problem is in the data set in question, so, Turban's argument, Turban and his colleagues' argument, relies on the idea that in this sample they looked at, most trans kids are still natal male. ROGD says that more and more natal female kids um, are going to come out as trans and become a bigger and bigger proportion of trans kids. That's clearly happening in clinics. These guys in their study say in this data set, most trans kids are still male. Um, They looked at two slices of data, one of 2017, one from 2019 from the CDC. I I don't understand why that would debunk RG in the first place. Like It could be most trans kids are still natally male, but they're shifting in a female direction, which is exactly what their data finds. Their data also seems to show that fewer kids are identifying as trans. That's what they say, uh, which just flies in the face of everything everyone else thinks about this topic. It flies in the face of Jack Turbin's own sworn declaration from a year ago uh, so they just sort of gloss over the fact that their data appears to show way significantly fewer kids um identifying as trans now other people point out to me that this was raw data they didn't weight it properly et cetera, et etc but i'm just taking their own claims at face value this is what they say they found and they zoom past what would have been a big finding without paying any attention to it it's just it's remarkably sloppy if you're a researcher in an area and you seem to find something that would debunk a huge amount of prior research, and then you just zoom past it, uh, it's baffling to me. Um, anyway, there's a lot of surprising things here. One thing that I found particularly surprising was one of the, the downsides of this data set is they just asked the kids what sex are you and gave them male or female to choose from. That's not the best way to ask trans kids about their biological sex or sex assigned at birth. I don't like that terminology, but... That's what people use. Uh, You're supposed to use like basically a two-step process where you ask them about their gender identity and their sex separately in specific, clear ways. In this study, they just said, what sex are you male or female? Past researchers had pointed out uh, when talking about this data set that you can't know how kids are answering this question. They could be answering it with reference to their biological sex. They could be referencing it with reference to their gender identity, but you just can't know. Turbin himself pointed this out a year ago in a tweet. Turbin was aware of this problem. Cut to this study. They say, well, one potential limitation is the way this question is asked, but let me just, I'm just going to read directly because I want to make sure I have this right. Quote, although this question does not refer to sex assigned at birth specifically, several studies, keep that in mind, several studies have found that transgender and gender diverse youth are likely to understand sex to be sex assigned at birth rather than gender identity due to the foundational salience of these characteristics in their identities. Again, several studies have found that transgender and gender diverse youth are likely to understand sex to be sex assigned at birth. This is a very specific claim about the world. This is a claim about reality. They put three footnotes there. Anyone reading this will say there's three studies, at least three studies showing that trans kids are likely to understand sex to be sex assigned at birth. I downloaded and read those three studies. None of the three studies even address this specific question. That is crazy for someone writing in a top medical journal to say, "Yeah, these three studies show that, you know, cats are mean." And then you look at the three studies and they're they're sort of they're sort of about cats, but they don't even ask whether cats are mean. That, that's Unbelievably unprofessional. It's like creeps right to the line of fabricating a claim because unless they're sitting on other studies, they're not revealing. If you the, the line, several studies have found that TGd youth are likely to understand sex to be sex assigned at birth. It it's a made up claim. It's a I, I don't know. Maybe someone calling in can tell me a more charitable way to look at this. If they don't have studies showing that, how are they not making a false claim intentionally? Now, maybe not everyone listed as a co-author on this study uh, looked into every single aspect of it. That's pretty normal. Sometimes you'll have one person doing the data, one person doing the writing, blah, blah, blah. I just don't understand how you can publish in pediatrics a false claim. Um, So that was one issue. There's reasons to think some of the kids didn't answer the question with reference to their biological sex. Michael Biggs, who's a big critic of youth gender medicine and the shoddy research underpinning it. That's me editorializing because it is shoddy. Uh, he showed that kids who said they were male, kids who said they were male and transgender, were an inch shorter than kids who said they were male and cisgender. So that shows that a lot of people who said they were male were biologically female. So right off the bat, that would call the study into question. There's all sorts of other major issues with it. You should just, if you want the full rundown, read my piece. There's other critiques of it I link to. I think one of the strangest things is, um, they they look at data showing that transgender kids report more having been bullied more than cisgender ones which is n- not new i mean whatever it's fine to report that everyone knows that and then they say that that's evidence against rapid onset gender dysphoria because why would kids identify into a bullied group my my br- i've heard this before my brain sort of explodes whenever i see this argument because it's so stupid the the, the example i use which i do not mean as a direct comparison in my post is like goths or other sort of edgy outcasty teenage subcultures it would make no sense obviously being a goth is socially contagious we know that whether whatever you think about being trans goths are hot adds neil they can be hot so that's true also disintegration great album um we know being a goth is socially transmitted. It goes through teenage social networks. We also know goths are probably seen as outcasts and weirdos and bullied more than non-goths on average. I think that's safe to say. It would make no sense to say how can being a goth be socially contagious when goths are bullied because the whole point is people who are already bullied or facing other issues or feel like outcasts band together as goths for some sense of community and for people to hang out with and for a subculture in the music. So, it's not taking – maybe ROGD is wrong, but you're not taking the hypothesis seriously if you say, well, why would people become trans? Trans kids get bullied. It's not like – as I point out in my article, it's not like people who would otherwise be the captains of the football team are instead choosing to be trans outcasts. It's The theory is, whether you believe it or not, that kids who already face some sense of disillusionment and ostracization and are having a bad time – latch onto this identity to give them community. So maybe that's false, but this is not a serious attempt to, to address the actual theory. Um, I have more thoughts, but let's jump to Oscar. Hey,
1: Oscar. sorry. Hey, can you? I can. Um, apologies. I was uh, doing something while we oh, were finishing your soliloquy. I've, my question is kind of like how this happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, You know, it's just, I mean, it's stupefying, right? And, you know, the general kind of sort of general theme of distrust in institutions, right, leads one to kind of ask whether the institutions were always asleep at the wheel or we just got more information about them. And I'm, you know, as someone who's studied this stuff in a great deal more detail than uh, a lowly tech worker like me, um, I would be curious what you think.
0: Yeah. So there's absolutely been increasing pressure on medical and mental health institutions to favor what I view as superficial and under evidenced approaches to this issue. That's definitely true. I sometimes I'm lucky enough. I get to correspond with like Andrew Gelman who's sort of the godfather of debunking. Andrew Gelman's
1: amazing. Like he's fantastic. I've like wanted him to write something about this evidence forever. And then he's probably too smart to do that (laughs) reasons. Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, he knows, he knows 20 times more about statistics than I ever will. And and I've occasionally gone back and forth with him on some of the stuff. His argument um, is that, Political bias doesn't really explain this stuff. He just thinks social science and, and you know other forms of research, this is medical research, I guess, are, well, no, this is social science, whatever. It's all, a lot of it's overlapping. Um, that they're always so bad and have such shoddy standards that if you say this bad research was produced by political bias, you're, you're sort of missing the forest for the trees um, because it's just research uh, practices suck and they have sucked. That's his argument. I he, he knows more than I do, so I'm somewhat sympathetic to it, but I can't imagine that the process of a paper like this getting published, the fact that the results were immediately going to grab headlines and and generate people saying, ha, we have scientific proof ROGD is fake, which is something people have been very eager to prove since yeah. ROGD sort of entered the lexicon. It, it just seems unrealistic to me that that doesn't have some influence on sort of the institutional process of something this like this passing through peer review
1: yeah i I mean i mean you know the so i think this is like i think the reason part this is such an interesting issue because i think it's just objectively fascinating but i also think the sort of social process that the elite have undergone around it is also fascinating which is sort of you know uh but then i think there's like a broader case here right we've seen stuff like this with covid like you see stuff like this with all kinds of Lesser, it's less obvious, but sort of there's some kind of epistemological problem with our kind of like knowledge-producing institutions. And I'm just like not able to really like put a finger on. Yeah, there's something up.
0: I, I think yes. I mean, I, I'm with you. I think one concrete aspect that we maybe could put a figure on is peer review. So, mm. Mm. a paper like this is going to get sent out to peer review to folks in the field of gender affirming medicine who are probably going to be at least a little bit hostile to rapid onset gender dysphoria. Um, So it's not, you know, and the question of what papers get published and what don't is very contingent and and sort of random because, you know, again, a group of clinicians, a group of researchers immediately looked at this and tore it apart online because the evidence, the problems were so transparently obvious, but, enough reviewers were like, yep, this is good to get it published. So yeah, I'm with you. I, um, my overall take is just, it's been crazy watching major medical institutions in the States and, and psychological ones ignore the problems with this evidence base. And I think we're soon going to be in for the stuff that's happening in Europe where they're sort of pulling the brakes a little bit and saying, I, I, this is not good. We have no very little evidence base for these treatments.
1: What is the mechanism for that to happen in the States? Because like, you know, uh, just to be transparent, I'm probably like to the right of you politically, but like you know, one thing I've been like, oh well, you know, this centralized medicine thing is not so bad after all because they're able to actually like review these things in like a more objective way. Yeah, it feels like these private institutions are, like a little more like prone to capture.
0: Uh, yeah, well, I think private and public—that's man—that's complicated. Which is more prone yeah, to capture? So right. yeah, <laughs> I so I, I just filed a column about this stuff, and my last point was why should anyone think the stuff going on at Tavistock isn't worse in the US? Because we're less regulated, we're more decentralized, our healthcare system's just less highly functioning. So yeah, I mean, Finland, Sweden, NHS, they all are, are basically nationalized healthcare systems where the government plays a strong role in oversight and, and and it's easier to produce research. I I think basically what will happen is that the professional pressure from folks in the networks at places like the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Psychological Association will just become too much for them to bear. A version of that, it's a little bit more nuanced, but a version of that already happened at the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Like The new standards of care guidelines emphasize both assessment and the possibility that social factors play a role in this in in a way that I think folks just realized they couldn't ignore this stuff and be taken seriously professionally. So I guess that's how it'll happen if it happens.
1: Yeah, makes sense.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Oscar. Joshua, what's going on?
2: Hey, brother. Um, Also, just quick note before I jump into my question or questions. Uh, I'm not sure institutionalized like a central uh, government will work uh, simply because we look at Canada. I'm out in Canada and, uh, I think that like politics play a huge role here also. And I think that there's a lot of institutions here that feel like they're afraid to come out um, and be seen as anti-trans when, you know, our, our entire conversation is, is it's not, you know, you know, go with the science, but it does feel like politics are impacting uh, our province and all the provinces wide uh, politics here. Yeah. I
0: mean, the, thinking... the other, the other factor is just the, the Canadian culture wars, I think, are just about on par with the American culture wars. And, you know, uh, England is maybe in the middle, and then Sweden and Finland. There's obviously some culture wars about these issues, but just nowhere near as extreme. So I think that distorts things,
2: too. Yeah, 100%. And it's hard to see. I, I, I remember th- there was the one Canadian clinic here and the one clinician, I'm forgetting his name, who was seen as an expert Ken, in Ken the Ken Zucker, and eventually yeah. Yeah, and he got uh, pushed out, you know, because of this. So uh, I'm, I'm not confident that, you know, like the government will will, will necessarily protect. Uh, and I think a lot of that is embedded. I mean, even in Ontario, we have, a I guess, technically a conservative government. And yet at the same time, the technocrats are embedded in there, are very liberal or not even liberal, progressive. And I think that it's very hard to unentrench uh, those things.
0: Yeah, I uh, that makes sense to me.
2: Uh, and then jumping into question, I guess th- this isn't d- to dispute uh, your critique, which seems incredibly valid. But in touching into factors that are leading to the rise of people coming out as trans, what is your strongman argument when people will say, "Look at the gay population. You know, many people, much more people, came out as gay." when society, you know, felt, you know, made them feel welcome and safe and accepted to come out, many people probably didn't even understand necessarily the emotions and feelings they were having, especially in, you you know, so I I guess my, not to say that there's no social contagion factor, but what's your strong man argument on, you know, where it is on the spectrum versus now, you know, just in the past, you know, half decade, let's say, you know, trans rights have really come through. If we were to par that up against, you know, one of the, you know, big, you know, moment in, uh, gay rights and intolerance. Would we not see a similar rise? I guess I'm curious about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, my, my view is that the increase in referrals to, um, clinics is an unexplained phenomenon. And if I had to guess, it's probably a mix of both. Now the data, the data is really bad because identifying as trans now means like 12 different things. Um, It could mean just like a general. Like, there's people who openly say they identify as non binary for political reasons. Um, And then there's people who have crippling dysphoria and, and, you know, would be dysfunctional without hormones. Uh, So, uh, zoomed out data on like the number of trans people might not address the question of like whether gender dysphoria uh, has a socially contagious aspect. I pulled up uh, this graph on the history of left handedness uh, that people always use as an example because left handedness is. You know, biologically innate, it showed um, basically where things end up is the percentage of left handed people just plateaus. We've like reached the true percentage of left handedness. We're not going to have anything like a true percentage of trans people because there's, there's, I don't know, this stuff is socially constructed to a certain extent. I think everyone acknowledges that. But Gabriel Rostman, this UCLA professor whose email I put in my post points out that stuff that's socially contagious, like baby names has a more specific curve to the graph where there's exponential growth at one point, And then eventually it dips back down. You'll see after uh, once left-handedness became an accepted thing, it never dipped back down and it's not going to dip back down. So I think that might be one way to look at the data, like especially some clinical referral patterns like at Tavistock mm-hmm. do follow that thing where there's an exponential rise and then it dips back down. Um, of course, mm-hmm folks aren't going to view that as dispositive because there'll always be some other explanation. They would say, well, that just means transphobia is getting bad, so people are going back in the closet. So I don't, I don't think we're going to have an answer that everyone accepts, but I think my understanding from talking to folks like Rossman is that to the extent you have good data, you can discern some hints about, I guess, innateness versus social contagion.
2: I, I, I wonder also... Um you know, the, the number of bisexual people who identify as bisexual exploded <laughs> also. yeah, And this is no knock to any fellow listeners uh, who identify as bisexual. Love you. Not a critique at all. But there was also a study that looked at the number of people identifying as bisexual but were in heterosexual relationships. Yeah. And, the, the you know, the there was a massive difference there. Again, not discounting, you know, who you choose to be as a partner, but It's interesting to see, you know, like uh, you know. I mean, everyone knows that
0: that there's a type of person who gains some clout by coming out as bi or queer online in a fairly vague way. I don't think that is an insult to people who, first of all, I don't care. I wouldn't question any. I don't know. That just seems like an obvious thing that sometimes happens. Now.
2: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Uh, And then if I have just thirty seconds as a comment to to jump back on a uh, a previous thing, I challenged you on. The article you wrote about how we should we shouldn't overthink too much, you know, the the progressives, because ultimately if we look at like top ten you, you know issues in the United States that are threatening things, it's pretty overwhelmingly on the right. I said, you know, I, I think that there's dangers from certain ideologies like CRT um that that are right up there in the top ten, let's say, and you said uh basically they've already been made illegal, so it's not something worth seeing. And I think I think in the past two weeks, we've seen a bunch of examples, you know, aired by people like Chris Ruffo, which again, take with a grain of salt, obviously, but I just wanted to push back on something I tried to say earlier, which is, I don't think that this goes away. You know, you pass some laws and then, you know, if you have a progressive institution, they'll find workarounds or they'll test limits. And I guess I'm coming back to, I don't really believe that something where you have again, spectrum of CRT and how bad it is. but You know, uh, we see examples of like segregated, you know, university, you know, um, meetings and hangouts and stuff like this. And I don't think that that's likely to go away in the near future, even with legislation coming out. So that's just a comment.
0: Sure. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I still think I disagree a little just because I think uh, there's a lot of similarly bad and liberal stuff going on on the right and – yeah, I take your point. Let's, let's leave it at that. It's a fair point. Thank yeah. you, Joshua. Yeah. what's up?
3: Hey, Jesse. So uh, earlier, was it this week, and uh, reported, tweeted, yes, we are going to talk about that one thing everyone is talking about on Twitter this week. And I, when, when that was, I, I now realize that was a joke, but I really thought it was serious because at that point, uh, Chris Chan had been trending on Twitter for like three days straight. And I was like, oh my God, they're going to talk about Chris Chan." I was like so excited, and then it's like, oh, they were just joking. <laughs> um, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, yeah, or if you if if you need me to explain because you don't know about it.
0: Oh, guess. yeah. I mean, we should probably skip this one for now, just because I did not know there was updates in Chris Chan worlds. Oh, uh, I don't know if
3: there was. I mean, I guess uh, there was an update in that they were there was like a grand jury apparently supposedly. That, that,
0: oh that God. Yeah. so <laughs> no, that I assumed people would interpret that as an Animar Martall thing because in my world that's all anyone was talking about. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All, right. <laughs> All right, I'll look into that. Thanks, Neil. Amanda, what's up? Amanda, you got to unmute yourself.
4: Sorry, you caught me a little bit off guard. How no are you worries. doing what's this up? morning? Can you Good. hear me? Yeah, um,
0: you're a little fuzzy, but let's try, so, to, try to do So, it.
4: Well, I can fix that because I can turn off my that better?
0: Uh, let's try. Just, uh, yeah. What's up? Well, um,
4: the, 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 so I'm gonna, I'm gonna put out a probably not popular, uh, theory about the increased incidents, alleged increased incidents of, of whether, whether it's trans or larger set of the population being identifying not strictly heterosexual. I mean, we can't filter all of the hormones out of the water, and the hormones women take as birth control for the last 40 years have been going into the water, and there's no way that that doesn't affect us in some way. I'm not saying that there's not legitimacy to any of the realities of trans and alternative gender and alternative sexual I shouldn't say even alternative I don't mean to be insulting but but you know it's it doesn't seem like it could be a coincidence but it's it's not just that there's social acceptance too but I I don't know I don't I just just thinking I don't know what you you think of that
0: um I just don't know anything about it, unfortunately. I Like if I had to just off the top of my head, I would say that it wouldn't surprise me if, if, if people are being exposed to different levels of hormones that it had a marginal effect on things like... there there we We know there's a connection between prenatal hormones and things like sexual orientation. So it's not by no means a crazy theory. I just don't know enough about it. And I think especially for folks who identify as trans without experiencing dysphoria, in cases like that where it's a little bit vaguer and fuzzier, same goes for folks who identify as bisexual but mostly just sleep with opposite sex partner or partners um, in those cases, I just it's social factors strike me as bigger but uh, i mean i i, I don 't think what you're saying is crazy at all
4: so i'm glad to hear i'm glad to hear that because i i don 't necessarily need the scientific an- analysis from you, but i don 't want to be putting out something it seems like it makes sense, but i don't also don't want to be. I want to be sensitive because I'm I personally am bisexual and I want to be sensitive to people who who like me are going kind of against the cultural grain, at least a lot less than we used to. But, you know. Yeah. So I appreciate you taking my call. Yeah, I know.
0: I mean, that's a uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, And thank you for posing it. Jane, what's up? Lost Jane, Justin. What's up?
5: Uh, hey, there, Jesse. Hey. Oh, I can jump out, and we well, could take Jane back if you'd like.
0: Uh, you go ahead, then I'll I'll get back to Jane.
5: All right. Um. Yeah, I, I wanted to actually kind of follow up on the the same topic there of um. one of the earlier callers was talking about um. How how. The different countries and institutions can react to kind of, let's say, medicine or healthcare going off the rails or other institutions. Truthfully, and I was thinking of Canada. They had a, uh, they had introduced legislation I think last year um, that basically banned was meant to ban conversion therapy for transgender uh, people, and uh, it seemed to basically say anything but. Affirmative care, including questioning alternate reasons why someone might be transgender would. Could fall under that uh, umbrella and would then be an illegal thing for you to do as a practitioner. Um, and it it brought into mind, you know, the idea that uh, we've always had this this conception of what it's like to be gay, where it's innate. It can't be changed. And that was part of the cruelty of, um, conversion therapy for homosexuality. Um, but how that doesn't necessarily map onto the transgender situation for some of the reasons like social contagion. Um, and Katie on your show mentioned, um, she's not so certain any longer if that, was ever really the whole picture for a homosexuality as well. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that because it, it's kind of been like, gospel for the last quite a while that that's just a given. And I, I I'm you also mean like the, the wonder, born this
0: way approach to homosexuality.
5: Yeah, exactly. I'm start, I'm starting to wonder like, is there really a good evidence base for that? Or is it just a, a good kind of social move to put that forward? Yeah, in terms, you know, getting the things that you know gay people want, like rights and stuff like.
0: That. I think I last wrote about this in 2016 or 2017. There was a a big, I guess, sort of review article on the that question that found that, you know, this is a very crude way of putting it, but it's something like 90% biological factors, 10%. Other factors for homosexuality, uh, so I think uh, researchers have softened on the idea the idea that it 's not just born this way anecdotally i know I know one friend who, in her thirties uh, realized she was gay uh, and she attributed, attributes it to in part, negative experiences with men, although you know there could always be a latent biological factor there. So I think like sex researchers are moving toward the idea that it's a bit more complicated than Born This Way, but not really moving away from that. Gender identity is different because, A, especially given the concept creep, it's vaguer and vaguer what gender identity means, and in some circles it's now like, oh, you don't like male um, gender norms, so you're a woman. I'm, I, that sounds like a caricature, but you can see people talk about their own understanding of gender identity, it maps onto that. So something like that is clearly socially mediated. Uh, and then we do have this base of evidence, especially from the this Amsterdam clinic, that most kids with gender dysphoria outgrow it. People pretend, not pretend, they think this research has been debunked. It really hasn't. So right off the bat, it's just a different situation. Because if whatever the number is, 50, 60, 70% of people who initially came out as gay in the long run turned out not to be gay. I don't know. We'd approach that question differently. Now, I don't think any of this really bears on the question of genuine conversion therapy, like trying to pressure or condition someone to not be gay or trans. I think that's obviously bad. But as Alice Drager was pointing out as early as like 2015 – And I think she wrote this in Wired, which is crazy because that would never fly today. Uh, Yeah, if you have, quote unquote, conversion therapy bans that aren't written in the right way, you can accidentally criminalize just the normal sort of identity exploration a good youth gender clinician will do. So, yeah, end of the day, I guess the the TLDR is being gay isn't quite born this way, but it's still pretty close, researchers think. Uh, Being trans, it's always been more complicated than that, and I think it's only getting more so.
5: Right. Yeah. I'm totally on board for the trans thing. I think the evidence is through the roof at this point, And <laughs> given whatever quality we can understand what we have, um, when, when you, when you were saying, uh, one of the reasons that you found it compelling for, um, trans individuals was the, was the fact that it can be transitory. Like you part of the language there, um, you, you you can feel strongly as though you're trans at one point in your life, and then later on feel otherwise. Is that a a different pattern for homosexuality? Does that not show up as often? Is I think part of what you're saying?
0: Yeah, my my sense is that that is a lot rarer for sexual orientation. Um, yeah, short answer, yeah. Now now with the trans stuff, these are the initial cohort studied were kids who who felt. Gender dysphoria, some either gender dysphoria or straight out saying they're the other sex from a very young age. Now, so it's different because you know people can have latent homo or heterosexuality, but doesn't really develop till puberty. And it's just a totally different thing because if you're studying a five-year-old or an eight-year-old, they're going to change in all sorts of ways over the next few years. And the older you get, the net the less you change over a three-year span. So there's just a lot of apples and oranges and I think people are trying to treat being trans as very similar to being gay but I just think they're both fundamentally different and the research bases we have are very different
5: yeah those population differences are huge okay yeah. thank you a lot Jesse
0: thanks Justin we'll do Jane and then John and then I gotta gotta roll out what's up Jane <laughs> Oh,
6: can you hear me I can yeah sorry it's a little confusing um, I was you had said earlier that there was, um, and you'd said it, I think in a podcast as well. But there was somebody who is uh, ch- had changed their pronouns for political reasons, and I if, I, if I'm not mistaken, it was somebody who was a writer, and I think it was it a they pronoun. That
0: right? was yeah, Farhad Manju, uh did that. When I just referenced it, I, I meant more people who still identify especially as non-binary who just when they describe what it is to be non-binary they do so in political terms but yeah farhad manju uh basically i think for a while was going by they as a means of like breaking down these barriers or whatever and, and i know some other people who do that they don't identify as trans but they use they pronouns in part because they're trying to break down the gender binary
6: okay um yeah well i guess my question is sort of based around that um it and Demi Lovato suddenly saying she's she again I, i'm i'm kind of you know it's a social question i i kind of think that people shouldn't have to be responsible to somebody shifting identities when it's obvious like that or their allegiance to some political idea about themselves and you know it's always coming with i use these pronouns but actually uh, the other people are using them so i just kind of struggle I wondering how responsible do people need to be, I mean also because i'm a school teacher, and so they're doing it you know in the classroom and so I'm, um, you know they're fourteen it, 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 it just how much are we meant to be playing into this it just seems it seems ridiculous like there's no off switch i don't know
0: yeah I mean um <laughs> I've talked about how, like, the conversation on this stuff has been, I think, a little bit philosophically impoverished, and a lot of it comes down to the question of, like, what we owe other people, and my understanding has always been that we should respect pronouns to, like, to be kind and to alleviate distress, and that doesn't mean there's no limits to it or that there aren't issues in, like, prisons and stuff, but I think it's – if you think it through, it's pretty different to say – in the case of someone who's like, I am doing this for political reasons, I'm doing this to make a political point to to project my political views onto others, I would say we probably don't have the same responsibility, but it's hard because then you, you have to like, it's unlikely you're going to ask every person who requests certain pronouns why they're doing so and that would probably be rude and it's probably easier just to go along with it overall.
6: Or ignore it. That's that's what I would say, you know, to go along with it. I think that that's pretty outrageous, especially if someone's doing it for political reasons. That's a really bad precedent. I I don't agree with that.
0: Well, I mean, by go along with it, I mean people like in your life or in your classroom who you have to refer to with a pronoun. I'm not saying any random person online. Oh,
6: I don't. I don't have to. I, I avoid it. That's what I try to do.
0: You just don't use the pronouns.
6: I try to linguistically sidestep it as best I can. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think that that when I'm hearing all of this, that sounds safer to me. Right. So every when I take everything into account, that doesn't, it doesn't sound like the right thing to be doing in society. Thank
0: you. Thanks, Jim. John, what's up?
3: Uh, Hey there. Um, So I'm sorry, this question, I came a little bit late. I'm sorry if something like this got asked, but um, you know, within the realm of like youth gender medicine, I think um, there's a consensus developing, but I guess I want to ask you like a more troublesome question. I so think that there's an emerging. It looks like the evidence is emerging that for a lot of people who are adults, gendered treatment doesn't do anything. Like not getting the treatment is very distressing, but then once they get it, it doesn't actually do anything. And so, what is the discussion about that? Like in the in the professional space, just how it does. It. Like I don't know if that's a placebo or what, but like the actual treatment itself. Doesn't actually seem. I don't think to have any real effects.
0: Um, are you referencing like specific new research on this?
3: Well, that JAMA study was about youth, uh, and it showed. You know, they tried to say that it it showed that the treatment improved outcomes, but really it just didn't improve outcomes. It just prevented it from getting worse. And just anecdotally, I'm gay. I know a lot of trans people. Um, the treatment never does anything and I know that coming out as a gay person makes everything a lot better but it seems like actually doing the trans stuff doesn't actually improve any outcomes even though they might not be distressed anymore that they can't get the treatment you know
0: yeah um, I've gotten increasingly worried about this in part because let me try to find this Cornell inequality so here's what worries me and what I was considering looking into but it's just a whole other hornet's nest cornell university has a frequently referenced site called um or page what does the scholarly research say about the effect of gender transition on transgender well-being they looked at uh 55 studies published between 91 and 2017 and say 51 or 93 percent found that gender transition improves the overall well-being of transgender people if you look at these studies the few i've been debating whether to do like a more comprehensive look at them they're, they're awful. I mean, there's studies with, with methods like ask people before and after they get a treatment, how they feel and they report feeling better, which is just, that's a non-study. That's a a useless result because there's all sorts of reasons ranging from placebo effect to selection bias for why people might report better, feeling better at point B than point A. Uh, I'm worried that if people actually looked at the research on adult transition, it would not be so rosy. There's also a huge bias toward highly gate-kept populations where they put up so many roadblocks earlier on in the history of this treatment that only folks with a lot of resources and really sound mental health could get through uh, the gates, as it were. So that would mean you just can't apply that research to the more liberal system we have in the U.S. So I I don't know. I my sense is there's folks who really feel better once they go on hormones. Uh, surgery strikes me as potentially tougher. Um, but we also know from detransitioners that they're like detransitioners who get double mastectomies, and then the gender, the body dysphoria just literally moves to a different part of their body. So I, I think people are overall too confident about the state of this research for adults. But I think the both the problems, the quantity of youth research is lower, the quality raises serious issues. I don't know if it's even lower than the adult, but it's just the the youth stuff just seems much more pressing because of the bioethical aspects of it. And because you need some second party to approve a kid going on hormones, a kid can't, can't get hormones themselves. Whereas with adults, um, even if you found that adult transition didn't work, it's a very uncomfortable question. If you want to like really prevent people people from seeking out treatments, uh, they think they need. So that was a long-winded answer, but you're just, you're just tying on something that I'm a little bit worried about. Cause I don't think anyone's really bothered to do. What would yeah. be the upside of like what Cornell did was, was I guess useful, but it, it, it was sort of half-baked. You can't just take a number of studies and be like, Oh, 90% of them show a good outcome. 10% show a bad outcome without uh, adjusting, uh, addressing quality. That's not how like actual, careful reviews or meta-analyses work. So,
3: Well, yeah, I know that uh, if you did anything like that, you'd probably get so much more shit than just, I mean, whatever. I know it's a horrible thing to even suggest <laughs> to like question the efficacy of adult gender medicine. But yeah, I just, it's a concern.
0: Well, it's, it's horrible, but I, the point I try to repeatedly make and that doesn't really work is like, if you actually not wanting to take a critical look at this, data is incompatible with actually caring about trans people like folks spend huge amounts of money and undergo huge physical stress to get these treatments the question of whether on the other side of that they'll feel better is 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 vital like if you actually care about trans people so it's it's just very like shallow form of allyship where the only way to be a good ally is to cheerlead treatments that don't have great evidence behind them. I just find that disgusting, frankly. Totally.
3: No, I agree. Yeah. I miss my concern is that my friends are spending lots of money and they're not rich people to like do these things that I just, I uh, just really worry that they're not, it's not actually helping, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All
0: right. All right. Well, thanks thank for you the call, John. Yeah. All right, on that cheerful note, I hope everyone has a good Saturday. Thank you for tuning in. As always, if you like what I'm doing here, I just ask you to tell a friend about my work, both here and on the newsletter and the the other podcast. Uh, But, yeah, I'll be back at some point next week, and thank you again. Bye.